Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, March the 8th edition, second week of the National Weather Podcast Month. We're happy to have you on tonight. A great show lined up. We have Ryan Hickman on from Allison House. He's going to be kind of telling us the ins and the outs and maybe some of the new products they are developing. So we're happy to have Ryan with us tonight. Uh, this is a live broadcast. So uh, if you are watching live tonight, you have any questions, please feel free to uh, send them our way. You can send them uh, via our Twitter account, at Car uh, Carolina WX Group, or uh, send them to us on Facebook. We'll make sure to get those and monitor those throughout the show. And if you're listening on the uh, rebroadcast or the podcast, you can uh, submit those to Ryan, uh, to Ryan himself. We'll let him uh, kind of share his social media stuff towards the uh, end of the show. So happy to have Ryan with us. I know a big talk, maybe we can talk about it before the show's over, of... Um, Maybe winter's last gasp here in the southeast as uh, we may see a little bit of snow before uh, winter wraps up. So uh, that's been a hot topic, but we'll kind of put that off to the side and maybe uh, briefly cover that towards the end of the show. So I do want to um, open it up to our panelists, let them kind of talk about what's been going on in the past week. We do have a familiar face back. He's on spring break. So I'm going to toss it first to Kit. Kit, welcome back. And how's spring break treating you? Thank you, Scotty. Spring break's treating me all right. I'm getting some much-needed sleep and doing some much-needed cleaning in my room. Um, other than that, I don't really have any plans but to just uh, stick it out of the apartment. I'm going to uh, go talk to my mom's class on Friday morning just about weather. Uh, they're learning weather this week, so a bunch of first graders I'm going to try and explain QG theory to. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> You should probably just go with cloudy with a chance of meatball. That's <laughs> yeah. I'm probably gonna give something about that. I might try and find a lightning picture or two to put up on the TV screen. But other than that, um, uh, schedule's clearing up, so I'll probably be back for at least the rest of March. Well, we're happy to have you back, uh, kid. Thanks for uh, coming on. Let's toss it up to uh, our good buddy Peter, who's up in the Northeast. Peter. Not only are you bracing for one round of wintry weather this weekend, but you guys may get something towards the end of the week as well. Yeah, we've been hearing about a lot of stuff coming up next uh, week or so, but it's been so nice around here. The trees are blooming. There's buds on the trees and everything. It's been so nice, and now we have to hear about this stuff coming up. Uh, but that's typical New Jersey and whatever, so uh, we have to deal with that first. But let me uh, share the screen here. And uh, show you that we got this little pesky system coming up for uh, Friday that could start as rain and then change over to snow. Uh, nothing big deal. But then Scotty was saying we got that storm to the south uh, that was supposed yeah. to be a major storm uh, look for New Jersey. Look over North Carolina. That's snow. We don't want there that. There you go. All <laughs> snow there. So that was way up into like of New York. Of course we want that. We <laughs> definitely it's want not, that. It's not like it's March or anything. Uh, <laughs> And then, uh, then I have to go on a little rant here for a second. There's already people talking about oh, this gosh. storm for Tuesday. I mean, seriously, <laughs> Tuesday, and we're already talking about it like it's a big deal. I, I just, I can't. So, uh, yeah, that's somewhere down the line, but we're not going to worry about that yet. Uh, so, yeah, so we got a lot of stuff coming up. But uh, I said the last time I was on here, oh, we're probably not going to get any more snow the rest of the uh, winter. But I jinxed it. So, sorry, everybody. How's that out for you? That's okay. Yeah, not not so, good. So sorry, Scotty. Scotty uh, I want to play devil's advocate here for a second because this is a problem in my mind. You know, 
if it was rain coming next Tuesday, we'd be perfectly fine showing you what the models show and everything shows and, and putting in our seven-day forecast and all that. But the problem is, and I understand the forecast <laughs> troubles that go along with it, but the fact that it's snow causes us all to try and hide the forecast from people, it seems like, <laughs> until we're a few days out. And I have a big problem with that. I don't know the solution to that yet, but as someone who tries to communicate things, I have an issue with that. <clears throat> so that's my rant for the night. I, I totally get it, yeah. Um, but you know, as, as well as we do, in, in the Northeast, it may be a little bit different than down here in the Southeast where we don't get snow all the time. So everybody just freaks out, you know, and then, <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't know. But There's I totally... people putting detailed forecasts out right now for next week. I, I totally... I totally agree with Ricky, though. I mean, you shouldn't hide it. But then again, you know, we know how the Southeast reacts. When <sighs> it is different for sure, based off you know location. But I hope that in the next five years, we as a weather enterprise or our forecaster or whoever can just come up with a solution to try and, and do some of this long-range forecasting. Because I fear that we are going to put so much emphasis on the short-range forecasting in these next two to three days that our long-term forecasting is going to suffer to where our pattern identification and our four to seven day time frame is just going to become a thing that the apps are doing and not so much us. I agree. That's, that sounds like a good topic for a show. That's a, that's a there you go. <laughs> All right, before I get to Ricky, because I'll let Ricky introduce our guests, I'm going to go down to the warm, sunny coastline of Charleston, South Carolina, we're all jealous because that's where we all wish we could be right now. Shay Gibson, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Scotty. Yeah, it's, it's been pretty mild here, pretty warm. We had a little a little cool down over the weekend. A cold front came today. Of course, every cold front that's been coming into the southeast the last week or so has just been dying out. So uh, we it fizzled out to nothing today. I think there was a brief shower in the early morning hours. We got up to 77 degrees today. I know you're jealous, uh, but I will share screen. Just like Peter, I have something I wanted to share as well. Let me know when you can see it. Yep, you're good. And this is our um, GFS two meter temperature guidance for the next 10 days. Now, uh, you get about three, four days out. Things start to become a little bit erroneous. This was showing low 50s earlier across from Tuesday, Wednesday of next week, but you can see the downward trend uh, this weekend as a, a cool mass, a cool air mass moves down from the north down to the southeast. Of course, North Carolina is under sort of a gun for a wintry weather event. And uh, I mean, you know, the ground is so warm. Everything is so warm right now. I mean, we've, we've started spring here. We've got pollen build up everywhere. We've got um, flowers blooming, azaleas, you name it. It's, it's spring. Um, a lot of people started planting. I think they planted too early because you see these temperatures dropping down near freezing. And earlier we showed temperatures down to the upper 20s and low 30s. And so eh, this could fluctuate. These tend to, this time of the year, these temperatures tend to go up. So we may be spared another freeze, but uh, it always goes to show that you can never trust March fully. We've actually had a snowstorm in 1993. It was more of a wind storm with snow mixed in, but you know, the weather's so volatile in the springtime until you get to, you know, about beginning to middle of April and then things start to really warm up from there. But you can kind of get an idea of, of looking at this chart that we still cannot trust it until winter is definitely over. So winter solstice, spring solstice, I'm sorry, is uh, March the 20th. And we are still in 
winter, but meteorological spring. Spring equinox. Spring equinox. I'm sorry. That's there right. Well, thank you, Shay. Yeah, I'm jealous of the 77. It was 70 degrees here today in Western North Carolina, so but it was a little bit breezy, so it felt a little bit cooler than that. But um, I definitely agree. You know, this is a interesting setup, and I'll bring Ricky into it because Ricky's kind of in my same area. We're kind of looking at the same type of uh, issues. Um, you know, a couple of days ago, well, actually Saturday, I was doing some work with Tim Buckley at WFMY, and we were watching it, and we had to forecast a sunny and 72 for Friday, or for Saturday. You know, five days later, now we're talking about the potential of snow, so it has been a very um, a fluid uh, situation. It does look like the models are continuing to trend south, and who knows, you know, March has been crazy, and this winter overall has been really crazy, so nothing definitely would surprise me um, here. I don't think we'll see a big snow, and I think um, I, I, I don't see what we've seen in January, but, you know, if, if all the conditions come together, you can see a light coating, maybe a couple inches or something like that in, in some areas in the Carolinas, and definitely up where uh, Ricky's at there in eastern Tennessee. So, Ricky, I'll toss it to you, and then I'll let you go ahead and go with Ryan, and we'll start the show. All right. Yeah, it's interesting, Scotty. I mean, we could have snow if the right setup occurs and the right cold air moves and all the way down to like Knoxville and further south, which is almost unheard of in the month of March. So it's a tricky little forecast has taken shape, um, but we'll see. You know, my gut feeling tells me that we're going to have some snow across southwest Virginia for sure. I feel like we're going to have some P-type issues for parts of northeast Tennessee, including the Knoxville and Tri-Cities markets as we start off the event but i feel like it's probably going to change over to snow as we go on and uh sunday morning's going to be a little messy and i'll probably be into work earlier than uh, i typically am on a sunday so fun times are ahead even as we go into the what second week of march almost well seven yeah second week of march so all right enough about snow let's bring in uh someone who knows a little bit about snow based off of where they live and further out towards the west. Ryan Hickman joins us from Allison House tonight. Talk a little bit about what Allison House is. I've uh, worked with them and have been a uh, subscriber on and off for the past couple of years and always loved all the data they provided. So we're happy to have Ryan and you on tonight to talk a little bit about what you guys do. Yeah, good to be on. Thanks. So first off, for people who haven't heard of Allison House, tell us a little bit about what goes on with Allison House, what, where the company came from, and what you guys have done now with your company? Well, uh, the company started about 10 years ago. Uh, Tyler Allison started uh, mostly from the fact that uh, the NWS public servers weren't uh, great at providing data reliably during severe weather events. So um, the it, it was born out of the need for uh, more reliable data than the public service can handle because mostly because we we get a huge demand on our public infrastructure during these events. Uh, companies use them just like Allison House. Uh, you know the the Weather Channel. Everyone we we all pay taxes for this data, so um, that need just grew and grew the point that the National Weather Service couldn't handle it. They, they didn't quite expect it. So um, we started pulling in the data from our satellite dish, uh, NOAA port dish, and uh, we're able to you know, keep up with the demand, basically. Uh, we know how many customers we have, so we can 
provide the data reliably and we scale uh, to that need, uh, you know, just by pulling that data in on the satellite. So it's a more reliable form of uh, communication when, when their uh, internet infrastructure goes down, we still get the data over the satellite and we're able to pass it on to our customers. And there have been several instances where that's happened in the past couple of years, especially during some larger tornado outbreaks where some of the public feeds, Iowa State, the level two servers have gone down. Uh, talk a little bit about how you guys keep everything going, how the how the redundancy comes into play, and then how the data just keep flowing even with some of the public servers being down. Well, um, I'd say we run at probably a two-in infrastructure and basically that just means we run at twice the capacity that uh, we're expected to handle. Um, that's mostly just because we we want to achieve this mark that is you know re reliable enough for for storm chasers that are out in the field, meteorologists that are on there, um, you know EMs that are making big decisions based on the data that they're receiving. Um, they they just can't have uh, a big delay or any outages. So uh, really just kind of scaling that capacity. We, we, we use cloud infrastructure. We um, are auto scaling. So essentially that just means that once that demand starts coming in, our infrastructure automatically grows to, to achieve that two win, that, that twice the capacity that we actually need so that we can serve every request, um, whether it's for you know severe thunderstorm or tornado warnings, or uh, radar data, level two, level three radar data. Uh, so it's just a matter of uh, making sure that there's always a server there to handle the request. And um, you know, I, we, I think we've done a pretty good job over it, of it over the last ten years. How many requests do you guys get on a, a busy, severe weather day? How many hits are there from your feeds? Is it something that can be tracked? Yeah. Um, so we, you know, monitor that pretty well just so that we're able to handle that. And so uh, to that end, we, we get about 200,000 requests a second. Um, obviously, we, we handle radar scopes uh, warnings. So whether or not you're a subscriber of ours, um, Radar Scope uses our uh, Alice House warnings just because we've been a reliable uh, source for that over the years. And if you are a subscriber of ours, uh, you use our you know radar data, so you know how reliable it is. And um, there's you know ten other applications that use us. Uh, so Gibson Ridge, obviously, you know. A big user of ours. If if you've uh, you know heard of us through Gibson Ridge, you know that we provide very reliable level two and level three radar feed. That you know maybe sometimes Iowa State isn't able to handle the, the level two requests, and that's because they're free. And, uh, they're you know an educational network. So uh, you know it, it. Like I said, just being able to handle twice the capacity is uh, very important. So talk a little bit about the integration between some of these partners. You guys have teamed up with, with GR, you've teamed up with Radar Scope, um, a few other weather 
softwares that are out there. How does that collaboration come into play? Do the subscriber or does the, I guess, product creator just approach you guys like, hey, I want to integrate some of your data or have the ability to? Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's generally where the relationship starts. Um, we, we, you know, like I said, we've been in business for ten years, so we've been known as a reliable form of uh, of communication of radar data, and uh, for that reason, uh, we've had various application developers approach us. Uh, Mike Gibson of Gibson Ridge was one of the first uh, that we started providing data to. Like I said, our warnings, our warning server. Uh, is you know among the best and uh, we've really just grown that relationship by offering this data to anyone who wanted to integrate us and uh, you know you, you do have to be a customer of ours uh, but in general the fact that it integrates with multiple applications that your your subscription gets you access to you know reliable radar scope warnings and uh, radar data and SPC outlooks and what have you. And then you can turn around and go to your computer and use Gibson Ridge software with that same subscription. It's very versatile. And, and for that reason, uh, I, th I think we've run that relationship because the application developers understand uh, the need to provide that reliable, reliable radar data uh, to their customers, especially storm chasers. And that's one of the things you know that is great about the products is they are cross-platform uh, between Radar Scope and GR. I can use the same type of account, and it's all under one account. Talk a little bit though about what the how many different types of data you guys pull in from that NOAA port server, and what types of data are you processing on a daily basis, uh, and then what some of the processing that goes with that uh, involves. Well. Uh, we use our, our own satellite dish. We actually have uh, two satellite dishes uh, where we pull in this data over the NOAA-port no network. Um, and getting that data you know, in and to a server is, is the first you know, step in the puzzle of actually uh, reproviding the data to the customers. Um, we pull in level two and level three radar um, that level two, unfortunately, doesn't uh, come over no port, so it doesn't come over a satellite dish. It's only available on uh, fiber infrastructure that uh, National Air Service provides. Uh, but we're able to pull level three radar, which is compressed level two, essentially, and uh, warnings, um, all of the models, basically, GFS, NAM, and uh, RAP. And her, uh, and we're also able to even pull over the MRMS data, which is just a derived. Uh, it's multi-radar, multi-sensor. It's a derived level two product, uh, basically a mosaic of uh, the country's level two radar infrastructure, and it, it even spans into Canada. So that's uh, incredibly beneficial data when it comes to actually, um, you know demonstrating to people what is going on going on around the country um, spanning the entire you know infrastructure of the national weather service plus even Canada um, so you know go what involves 
actually decoding that data is is just years of experience and seeing what that data actually looks like and dealing with um, the different data formats that come across. Uh, level two and level three radar, we don't actually decode. We just pass straight on to radar programs. But when it comes to model data and uh, and warnings and things like that, we've learned you know some tricks over the years that gives us the benefit of actually providing a more reliable. You mentioned data from Canada. Does that come in in a different format? Is that different than United States National Weather Service data? So Canada doesn't run WSR-88Ds, um, although they did just approve uh, upgrades to the radar infrastructure within the last month, I believe. Um, that, that data is, actually comes in as the MRMS mosaic. So it comes merged with our level two uh, radar products, basically reflectivity products for the most part. Um, so just so that the MRMS part expands into Canada so you can see things going across the border or anything like that. Okay. Uh, Kit, did you, or sorry, not Kit. Um, Shay, did you have something you wanted to talk about? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to ask how, what's your relationship with Gibson Ridge and how do you get that data are you just you just get the data and then pass it on to Gibson Ridge in radar scope or how does how does all of this integration of data work? So um, we we've always brought in the data and our initial relationship was with Gibson Ridge. And that was mostly just because um, that that was the only program around at the time. He was Mike Gibson was one of the first to develop a radar application that was um, you know actually usable for everyone who was using it at the time, which were generally more experienced people, you know, using even in the field. Um, but our uh, relationship with RadarScope developed out of just, uh, RadarScope wasn't always owned by uh, WDT, so they, in, in the beginning, they were based velocity, and, and uh, that, they, they were a small radar team. Uh, they, they knew how to decode the data, but they needed a reliable, uh, method of getting the data to them, and like I said before, the uh, you know the National Weather Service infrastructure wasn't great at handling that before. But uh, so our initial relationship with Gibson Ridge mostly just was born from uh, the fact that we had the level two radar data, and most other people didn't because it comes over fiber, and National Weather Service doesn't distribute it directly themselves. Um, it's, there's no National Air Service server for level two radar data, which is, um, you know, that, that's just the way things are right now. But we were able to get our hands on the data, and we wanted to provide that to the customer. So you combine that with our lightning data, which we've offered from the very beginning. Our lightning data is a summarized um, lightning product that makes it cheaper. So. We show strikes every 2.2 miles instead of actually showing every individual strike. Um, that lighting data that that includes every single strike is very valuable to the lighting data providers who tr actually triangulate that data, mostly just because um, there's insurance uh, reasons behind that. You know, you, you get a lighting strike on a house, the uh, insurance company is going to want to to know, 
you know, if that lightning strike actually occurred. So we were able to provide that data for, for a lot cheaper uh, before anyone else. We pioneered the, the cheap lightning data. And uh, you combine that with the level two radar data, the highest resolution that we can possibly get our hands on. And, uh, you know, we, we knew that we needed to get this to the, the community. We, we've always been a huge community advocate. And that's why we've always opened up everything to the application developers to actually develop their software and then include us if they want to include us. That reminds me of uh, our latest geostationary satellite, the GO-16, that has a geostationary lightning mapper that's going to be coming into play here. Is that something you're going to be looking forward to as well to integrate into your products? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've spent probably the last five days, restless nights, uh, decoding the GO-16 data. And I'm uh, pretty proud of what we've accomplished. I'm uh, hopeful for the, the uh, lightning mapper uh, hitting the satellite, the NOAA port satellite, so that we can actually get our hands on that data. Lately, we've only had the uh, the base imager. Um, so, you know, there's, I believe, 16 bands there for us to play with for now. But, yeah, we're, we're definitely looking forward to playing with the lightning data once it comes across. 16 bands, not enough. Need more data. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> uh, kid had a question you want to bring in. Yeah, so uh, like you're talking with the Go 16, they have the lightning mapper. Um, a friend of mine has a little uh, thing he got on Amazon for like 40 bucks. That's a lightning detector. Um, mm -hmm. On what level of technology are it, or is the network of Allison House of the lightning detectors um, on on that scale? Like, is it um, something that's you just place here and there, or is it like how how is the network of lightning detectors organized? So Allison House actually uses a professional lightning network. Um, we use a uh, we use the Earth Network's total lightning network, uh, which spans the entire globe. Uh, in fact, um, they have enough detectors out that the data is triangulated. So it's Within, I believe, a 10 meter error, um, you know, margin of error, as far as uh, the location of the strike. Um, you combine that with the fact that it can detect the difference between cloud-to-ground strikes and intracloud or cloud-to-cloud strikes. Um, these are all important factors in determining uh, what a storm is doing. Um, you know, the, the damage that might be occurring. And uh, the, dif the difference between, you know, this professional network and those detectors that you can buy at home is first off, the professional network is triangulating that data. Um, it's much more precise. Uh, the home box kit that you're, you're getting uh, is somewhat prone to interference from other electronic devices in the area, power lines most notably. So filtering out that noise is, uh, is kind of important because 
you're, you're detecting the difference between a clouded ground strike and an intracloud strike. And having those power lines adjacent to you and, and interfering with the, that detection just completely throws everything off. Um, so while home box kits for um, actually detecting lightning are, are great and they're evolving and they're getting better, they're not on the scale of a global lightning network, which uses uh, you know, very efficient uh, detection algorithms and uh, hardware to actually detect those strikes. It, it, it's just incomparable. Uh, Ryan, we've had the opportunity at uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway to use some of your high-resolution lightning data. Uh, talk a little bit about how that varies from the, the more, uh, I guess, the lower-level data that's provided uh, that most people use. So Alice now subscriptions, uh, it's $12 a month. Uh, it gets you the 2.2 mile summary. So you, you'll see an icon uh, for lightning, for a single icon for lightning within a 2.2 mile radius around that location, that actual icon. Um, the difference between that summarization and the precision the, the uh, high resolution network that you were using is that we're not summarizing any of that data. You are seeing exactly where the lightning strike occurred. You're seeing when it happened. And then in addition to that, you're seeing the polarity, whether it's positive or negative, and the amperage. And those are significant factors in uh, determining storm strength as well. Uh, but it, it's also significant in protecting life and property. Um, you know, when when you're dealing with protecting your guests, you want nothing less than the highest resolution because you want to know when that first strike hits in your radius that you're provided, and you want to guarantee the safety of those guests and, and get them to a safe location. Um, that 2.2 mile summarization is is the difference between zero and, and two, two miles, uh, you know? So that, that buys you time, and that's important. Yeah, time is very valuable when you're trying to evacuate a grandstand or clear people out from a uh, field or something like that. So it certainly uh, can come in handy. All right, let's segue just a little bit to some of the data from the past to some of the data of the future. Uh, as you mentioned, and we've been chatting a little bit on Facebook about, you've been dabbling into Go16 data for a couple of days now and trying to decode some of it. Talk a little bit about how that uh, process has been. Any surprising quirks of the Go16 data that have come up? Uh, so traditionally, we've received uh, the Go's data over our satellite dish, just like we do the Go16 data. Um, however, the Go's data comes in in a single file. Um, that's mostly just because of the resolution. Uh, the, our current satellites that we have up there aren't as awesome as this goes 16 goes our satellite. So um, when the goes our goes 16 satellite data started coming over Noport, the first thing that we had to learn was that they it came in tiles, so it came in segments 
that we needed to merge together to build the full image. And that's just because of how strong this satellite actually is. It's, uh, it's very precise. It's got a great resolution. It's a 0.5 kilometer visible versus uh, one kilometer visible. So it's twice the resolution on the visible satellite. And then you add, add to that the fact that the satellite actually um, comes in uh, twice as fast, actually three times as fast. Um, traditionally, we've had images coming in every 15 minutes. And uh, with GO16, we have images coming in every five minutes. Uh, that, that's very, obviously very fast and at a very high resolution. So we're getting uh, a considerable amount of data over, over a satellite dish that, that traditionally hasn't serviced you know, this much data. So uh, actually decoding that data has, has been a new challenge just because of the tiles and, and that difference and the fact that it's coming in so, so quick. You had, much you had an image uh, that you shared a couple days ago. I don't know if you know, you, you can share your screen as well on here. Uh, and maybe we can pull it up if not, if we can't get it. But I'd like to show kind of how that beta, when it hit your servers, made it uh, be a lot more, I guess, used is a word for something. Um, it really hit the servers, and you could see when that Go 16 data hit the servers because of uh, the massive amounts of data that were coming in, right? Yeah. Um, so here, let's see if I can pull this up here. Sorry. Left-hand side is a little green button that says screen share. You click on yeah. that. Does that work? And, yep, we got you. I think so. See the graph? Yeah, Twitter is what we're looking at. Don't see the <laughs> graph. Okay. Um, I see it's, just, it's not popping up in the... Okay. You may have to do like an entire window and then uh, share it that way. Sometimes it doesn't like to do the applications that try to open up something inside of them. All right. I'll do that. Well, yeah, the, the amount of data was uh, considerably higher just because, like I said, the, the quality of the data, you know, it's both increasing to uh, three times the frequency, but also, all right, entire screen yet? No? I think Peter's got it. Peter, go through a couple more images. We're looking for... Um for the ones go down a little bit more keep going keep i'm going. used to the inception when i start screen sharing <laughs> a little further a little bit more lots of go 16 data i've been sharing lately you can imagine why there, there it is right there, there. Compared to a, what you were getting before, how much of a significant jump is that? It almost looks like double, right? It is about double, yeah. That's that's remarkable, and just the resolution. Why was it any idea why it was so much more the initial phase there? Was it just all the raw data initially coming in? Uh, it's a combination of the fact that, um, like I said, they haven't shared this amount of data over the dish before. So they were probably toying with what they they could actually 
put through. And uh, that combined with uh, the fact that they also weren't going, they weren't planning on sharing all of the mesoscale sectors, which are, they're actually doing uh, smaller sectors that come in every minute, um, which are more, you know, focused in on areas it's for, you know, fire, weather, and things like that. So we see the, the data now, I mean, and it's double what it was before. When we get geostationary lightning mapper data and, and those mesoscale bands, how much more is this incoming data going to increase? Um, I, I don't see it increasing a whole lot more. Um, I, I think that the, the images you've seen with the geostationary lightning mapper may have been combined with other bands, but I'm not uh, entirely sure. It's hard to know for sure. We haven't actually had this data, like I said, sent like that before. So, um, you know, you, honestly, your guess is as good as mine. But uh, when the data does come over, we'll, we'll definitely be right on the, the tail, you know, trying to make sure that we get it decoded and uh, so that everyone, everyone can see it because it's this is totally new for our lifetime, obviously. And uh, I just think that this data is, um, you know, just shows what the United States can do as far as uh, weather data goes. And I, I sure hope that the, the uh, tax issues and what have you get figured out because this data needs to continue to be flowing to the people who need to use it. Sure. Ryan, what sort of solutions do you have for this this storage of this data? I know that you guys uh, provide up to two weeks of level two and level three radar imaging for folks that want to uh, subscribers that want to get that information. But now this is this is entering into a whole new arena. Are you going into supercomputing, or are you clouding, or what, what's how do you store that much information? So um, about a year ago, actually, nearly exactly a year ago. We switched to cloud computing. Traditionally, we had used uh, what's called bare metal, basically just servers that were uh, built on a, on a rack that we knew were reliable. Um, they could handle all the storage of that data, and they could handle uh, the throughput and everything to get the, actually get the data to the consumer the fastest in the market. Because, like I said, you know, time is everything. Uh, now, as far as this Go year goes, we, we switched to cloud computing. Uh, the reason we switched to cloud is because we can get solid state drives cheaper uh, to store, actually store this data and even get it to you faster. Um, you combine that with uh, the fact that our infrastructure automatically scales to our demand with, uh, with cloud computing. Uh, we, we've increased our uptime by two-tenths of a percentage, and, and that's significant when it comes to actually providing a state of the consumer and, and getting it to you reliably, uh, whether it's lightning data, radar data, warnings, whatever. Go ahead, right, Kit. Um, one question I had was uh, when we had that graph from, uh, from your Twitter earlier, it showed that spike um, from, you said it was the Go16 coming on? Yeah, uh, that was, uh, I believe it was around 19Z, 18Z. Uh, okay. They, they um, just turned it on, yeah. 
Well, I, I know that Goes is still getting some tweaks worked out. Do we know if that's an actual data that there was just more lightning being detected, or is it just the whatever lightning detector on Goes? Is it just having some tweaks that needs worked out? Um, so the the graph that was shown actually doesn't include any of the lightning data. Uh, that's because they have not provided that data over the satellite dish at all yet. Uh, so that was the 16 bands that included just the, the imager that were infrared, water vapor, visible, um, there's uh, ozone, um, various other bands uh, that were provided. But the, the GLM band, as they call it, um, to detect the lightning, that hasn't been provided yet. And it's more of an algorithm kind of thing. OK, gotcha. Vicky, do you have any? I did. I, I was trying to bring up something, and I was trying to click around and bring it back yeah. up. I couldn't get it's to you muted. Yep. All right. So, um, Ryan, let's talk a little bit about the future of weather data. Obviously, we're going to have more and more and more data and larger and larger files coming in in the future. Where do you, as a data programmer and a someone who has to sort through the data, see us going? Or, more importantly, where should we go in the world of uh, computing weather data? Well, there is a lot of value in um, our, our numerical models and uh, how they are actually done. Um, as you see with the European, the ECMWF, uh, they, they've got a great infrastructure behind them, which allows them to perform more precise calculations um, at a quicker speed than the United States is unfortunately able to do at this time. And uh, you know, while while we improve the quality of the GFS and the NAM here and there. Um, the European is a global model down to um, the same kilometer scale basically as our uh, high resolution wrapped refresh. So I, I see our data growing as far as um, requiring supercomputing, but that supercomputing also being uh, graphics processor driven. Um, most of the modeling done in the United States is done through a CPU, which isn't as good as a, as the GPU or the graphics processor at uh, handling these numerical calculations and, and figuring things out um, on a higher resolution or a finer scale um, and further out even. Uh, so I see that GPU processing of our numerical models being the next frontier of actually improving the United States weather data and weather prediction. Um, and I, I know we'll get there. Uh, we have you know, great minds behind this. Uh, Unidata is invaluable when it comes to uh, contributions to this uh, community. So I know that we will get there. Um, it's just a matter of you know uh, the programmers realizing that uh, CPU computing is just not going to, to bring us the level that we need to be at um, when compared to these the this conglomerate or this, you know the European model uh, for that the whole globe um, 
you know, being at the scale that our high resolution refresh model is. Uh, and satellite data is going to be a big contributor to that too. Uh, those models require satellite data. For someone like you who then has to get that data and process it, how much more of a workload and a data load will advances put on you guys? Um, we are we're we're always ready to grow as far as computing goes. Cloud computing has offered um, great advances in the field of commercial weather data, and that's just because it's cheaper to 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 buy a computer or a processor um, or disk uh, for a shorter period of time, um, and then not pay for it when you're not using it. So uh, when you have high resolution rapid refresh model coming in every hour, of course, you're going to have to be waiting for that every, you know, every hour. But when you have uh, the NAM and the GFS and everything else coming in every six hours, you really only need the compute resources for you know, a short period of time while you, while you process that. Uh, so like I said, cloud computing is, it, it's easy to grow our infrastructure to support the demand that we need to support. And uh, we're, we're always ready to do that because we have the benefit of actually having the satellite dish, two satellite dishes, to provide this data to the weather community. And, and we're merely you know, just trying to get that data out so that someone can do something with it because it's important. Okay. Um, let me share my screen real quick, and we're going to show Allison House Maps and uh, let you talk a little bit about how this idea came up and uh, some of the data that's provided on Allison House Maps. So um, Allison House Maps covers both model data and uh, some real-time data. And uh, as you're seeing here, this is the GO16 uh, long-wave infrared data. Takes a little bit longer to load. It's a lot of data. Um, you're seeing it in the tile form uh, that I was describing earlier. That those tiles come in uh, over our dish. Um, like I said, it, it's important because each frame is five minutes um, of data, and our current geostationary satellite only handles uh, 15 minutes. Um, so it's important that you know we, we get this finer scale and um, actually see these differences in between frame to frame so that we can make better decisions. From a uh, from a programming standpoint, how did you come up with the idea for maps? I mean, it, you know, it, okay. it seems like a kind of everything into one place kind of idea. Yeah, um, so GR Earth um, is a Windows program, and there's quite a big Mac market now. Um, and personally, as a Mac user, uh, booting up a, a Windows virtual machine just to run GR Earth or, or whatever other uh, program was uh, just seemed unnecessary and, and it was bogging down my computer so um, actually putting this in a web browser means that you can run it on your phone too hmm. 
and that's significant because uh, it just obviously uh, having the same interface between your computer and your phone is uh, you don't have to learn anything new. Mm -hmm. I feel like everyone before had to um, actually have different applications for you know the, the different uh, soft uh, different things they wanted to view. I want to view satellite data. I want to view MRMS data. I want to view you know current observations, um, model data. I, I don't want to have to learn a new interface to do all those things. And being able to do it between your your desktop computer and your phone was really the big selling point for me to actually build this. And not just phones, but I mean tablets now. Tablets are becoming such a large part of everyday life, iPads and, uh, and Android tablets. I assume this works on those too, right? Yeah, yeah it does. Um, so we, we built this for um, iOS and uh, Android and uh, Mac and PC. I mean, it's cross-platform. Uh, mostly just, like I said, because, you know, we didn't want to learn a new interface between the two. Um, so you'll have to go back a day on the Modus imagery just because it's going to be loading. There we go. Wow. Yeah. So um, combining all the satellite data and everything, I, I just haven't seen anything out there. And uh, there were some early model websites that, you know, actually decoded the models and, and put them up, but they the quality didn't increase at all when you zoomed in. And I, I knew it could be done. Um, you know, there, there's other websites out there like Tropical Tidbits and, uh, you know, what have you that, you know, Weatherbell, the, all the others, they have this data, but it's regionally sectored and it's single images. Um, I, I don't know. I've, maybe a little different. I like to play with the data a little more. So I like to be able to overlay the layers that I want to lay, overlay and uh, combine data to the point where you know I, I see what I want to see. And, and one of the nice things about this too, how I feel, is that it allows you to, um, well, I was going somewhere with this point, and then I totally forgot it. <laughs> Boy. Back Ricky, just, just for our viewers, Ricky, what exactly is this product that you're using right here that, that they'll know uh, which product to use? Um, well, what I was looking at a moment ago, what you're seeing on the images, and, and uh, because, like Ryan said, they're large data files, it takes a moment to load. Uh, this was the full disk image from Go16, but this is uh, one of Allison House products that they supply now. Uh, instead of, it used to be, and Ryan, you can go more into this, it used to be bundled with one of your Storm Chaser subscription or Storm Hunter subscription into GR Earth. Now you guys are offering Alice House Maps instead, correct? Yeah. So um, traditionally, we've offered uh, a Storm Hunter subscription included uh, uh, GR Earth or Alice House Maps. You got to choose, um, and uh, our radar data as well as our place files for use in Gibson Ridge or if you want to use our data in Aeroscope, or there's Pickle on Android, there's Weatherwall on iOS, there's just so many applications that integrate with Alice House data. Um, 
But we offer GR Earth with Storm Hunter, and uh, over the past couple of years, I've been developing this, and we decided that this is probably good enough that we could start offering this with GR Earth instead. I mean, with uh, Storm Hunter instead. So uh, this is Allison House Maps. It's it's browser based. Like I said, it works on uh, multiple uh, platforms, um, and and really the key was just being able to use the data uh, universally. Uh, out in the field, I'm, I'm a storm chaser. I like to be able to see some model data, the uh, current observations uh, or, you know, whatever, while, while you're out in the field. And that's it, always proved really valuable. So I, I wanted to combine that data without having to have multiple applications. Now I remember my point I was going to make. Um, because it's a web-based software and not a, uh, like a, a install software, how easy is it to add a new product versus uh, a regular software? Well, um, Go 16, when I did it, was available the night that it came out. Um, so uh, I, I would say incredibly easy. <laughs> it's uh, very easy to add a product without having uh, Apple, having to go through the Apple approval process or the Google approval process and just get the data to you so that you can actually get your hands on it right away because like I said we, you know we've got the satellite dish we just uh, want you to be able to use the data it, it, it's really you know a matter of just getting it decoded and usable into an application and, and we're breaking that barrier it all depends on how much sleep you need to get on a daily basis right that, that's the key. Uh, I mean, I don't need a lot, so. <laughs> but the dog's still pacing around at 2 in the morning. You're like, ah, okay, he's still awake. So, well, he was awake. Now he is. Um, all right. Well, we are coming up on um, 9 o'clock. So last question from me. Any uh, cool new things coming from Allison House in the future? Um, I mean, we're always working on things. Unfortunately, we've, we work in the winter um, so that, you know, we don't interfere with the severe weather season. Um, we've made a lot of strides in the last six months as far as making our light, lightning data more precise by, you know, uh, instead of the 2.2 mile summary, we while we still do that, we show the lightning icon at the most recent location uh, so it doesn't have this grid look. And uh, Go 16 maps, the, the globe, global maps that uh, you were just showing, that that's two weeks old, maybe. <laughs> so uh, we we work hard in the winter, but um, as far as weather data goes, it kind of take kind of stalls out during the spring weather season, just just so that everything is reliable and gets to you on time. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Any other questions from the rest of our panel here? Otherwise, I'll toss it to Scotty. That's right. been a cool. Uh, insight to Allison House. I've seen it on radar scope just looking in the menu. I've never really known what it was. So thank you for coming on. Thank yeah. you. I really like how uh, radar scope, even radar scope pro, how how that application works, but your data coming into that's invaluable. I mean, you know, we, we see it time and time again on the coastline uh, where lightning strikes along the beach and coast. Uh, you get these bolts out of the blue. I mean 20, 30, 40 miles out in distance and it's great because we can capture that and say, here's the time that it happened. 
and relay that to the public. Then don't be fooled if the storm is well inland. Now we have the proof behind it. So we appreciate everything that you guys do and uh, keep it going. You guys are doing great. Thanks. Yeah, just to echo what Ricky said, we really uh, use your stuff out at the Speedway, uh, especially during the race week. So we appreciate that and all of the products you guys do. I did have one question, not pertaining to, to Allison House or anything. You said you was a storm chaser. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we end the show, give us a storm chasing story. Something maybe sticks out or, or maybe one of your most memorable chases. Well, the El Reno tornado. Um, unfortunately, the El Reno tornado was most memorable. Um, I, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I moved to Colorado about five years ago. Um, my stepbrother lived in Oklahoma. I came down uh, around my birthday to chase every year, uh, last five years. Um, so we, we got out. Um, just east of El Reno, real early that day. Obviously, we could, you know, the the feeling, just the the humidity and everything. It's living in Oklahoma that long, you know, when it's a, a stormy day, you know, when it's going to be tornadic. Um, we got out just west of El Reno, right uh, as the tornadic storm approached. Uh, right by the airport, just southwest of the airport, and uh, and seeing that thing with with um, multiple tornadoes, uh, satellite tornadoes on the ground around it was was very humbling. Um, we knew immediately just just leave, just get out. It, it wasn't worth it, and uh, unfortunately, that that proved to be the uh, one of the more unpredictable tornadoes and, uh, you know, we wish things could have been different, but, um, that will always stick out in my mind. The El Reno tornado on May 31st, 2013. Wow. Yeah. Um, myself and, uh, Joey Mosseller, he, um, panelists from time to time, we were able to go out to the memorial that they had built, um, there a couple of years ago and, and get to see that. And, you know, just to hear stories from from people who who experienced that, it was you know definitely um, once in a lifetime. So uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I just it's always interesting to hear different chasers' uh, point of view and stuff. So we appreciate having you on tonight, Ryan. And hopefully, uh, maybe this time next year, we can have you back on and talk about some cool new things with uh, with Allison House. That'd be great. I would like uh, before the show's over, uh, maybe. Uh, for those who are watching, if they want to get in touch with you guys, what's the what's the best ways to get in touch with Allison House? And then maybe you, uh, if you want to share any social media or anything like that. All right. Well, on Twitter, we're just at Allison House. Um, and I'm at Ryan Hickman, H-I-C-K-M-A-N. And uh, we, we have Facebook as well. Um, you can always email us and uh, allisonhouse.com. Uh, you know, we're always willing to take criticism and and uh, get you know do what we can to get this to you faster <laughs> sorry about that didn't mean to cough well we appreciate it ron thank you uh for coming on uh we've enjoyed it tonight and um oh, excuse me and learned a lot these these allergies are killing me here in north carolina so that, that's the weird thing scotty we're talking about snow and allergies <laughs> like the pollen is snowing out from the sky anyway my car looks horrible right now it's, it's all yellow it's crazy but uh but, Ryan, we do appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. I do want to do a quick mention. Uh, man, National Weather Podcast Month has really taken off. 
Uh, I think Shay has got the uh, article, <coughs> the Weather Geeks, over, uh, I guess, the past uh, day or so, um, promoted the uh, National Weather Podcast Month and uh, really got a lot of hits. We want to thank Weather Hype for uh, creating this really cool site and kind of talking about each uh, podcast and, and the schedule of this, uh, this upcoming month. So those who are watching tonight who have never seen the Carolina Weather Group, we welcome you and we hope that you uh, come back uh, and watch us. We're on every Wednesday night, well, almost every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, there's sometimes we uh, go on special nights and <laughs> I'm sorry. And um, my cough drops are, are, are wearing off. But, um, but yeah, we, Scotty was sitting here saying, he's like, I hope I can make it through the entire show without I, coughing. I know almost. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, thanks uh, for those guys for making this and uh, really enjoyed being a part of this group and I uh, hope to see it continue throughout the years. So heads, uh, congratulations to everyone who has had a successful show already and, Look forward to um, continuing it throughout the rest of the month. So, Shay, I'm going to let you take the next two uh, topics uh, for our upcoming show since uh, you've uh, been actively pursuing our guests and talking with them. So I'll let you take it, and then we'll uh, wrap it up from there. Yeah, March 15th, uh, next Wednesday, we have John Jensenius. He is Noah's lightning expert, and we've been on his uh, wait list for about eight and a half months now. So we were looking, we were really looking forward to it. I got a confirmation from him just recently that he'll be on next week. Uh, this is, he is the, the man when it comes to lightning and getting the information out about um, any, anything having to do with it. Uh, the lightning strikes, deaths. Uh, he's the, the foremost, uh, sort of the, the steward of lightning information. So he'll be joining us next week. Really good guest. The week after that, we start talking about sea level rise with Noah's Doug Marcy of Coastal Management Services here in Charleston, South Carolina, actually. And uh, he's going to discuss flood inundation products and anything having to do with, with coastal resiliency. He's, a, he's an expert at this. And so we're going to find out a lot more about what's going on there. I think with, that there's a, a growing concern every year with coastal flooding as we are seeing sea levels rise. So it'll be really nice to hear what he has to say about that to sort of verify uh, things that we are already researching. Yeah, thank you for for that, Shay. We're uh, looking forward to those uh, great guests. I mean, those are two top-notch guests, so I'm very happy to have uh, Doug and John joining us over the next few weeks. And as we wrap up the uh, National Podcast uh, Weather Month, uh, we are going to be having uh, the Stormfront Freaks, a fellow podcast. I'm um, going to be joining us and um, talking about them. I think, Shay, you and I are doing Weather Junkies uh, next week, next Thursday, I believe. Let's see here. We've got... Carolina Weather Group on the 22nd. No, 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 that's ours. Let me, yeah. <laughs> I'm I trying to keep up with it myself. We got a whole schedule here. <laughs> I think we're doing next Thursday, I believe, is what what I have schedule, uh, scheduled. And then, Ricky, you are doing yeah. Weather Brains as well. I'm not sure of the date of that. Is, do you know? Next, on the 20th, I'm joining uh, Weather Brains with Chuck Doswell. So that should always be an interesting show. So That will be a good show. <laughs> You'll have to uh, recruit Chuck onto our show after. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, and we'll continue this throughout the month. Who knows? We may have a few more podcasts jump on, or we may jump on a few other podcasts. So, uh, very, uh, very cool to do this. Um, hopefully, this will continue to grow throughout the uh, coming years. Then, as we look into April, we're going to start talking about Awareness Month. Um, Got some great guests coming up. Chris White, uh, veteran storm chaser in the state of Virginia, 
uh, will be joining us. Uh, Trish Palmer from the uh, National Weather Service in Greenville Spartanburg will be joining us. Um, and then we're working on, uh, you know, we always try to try to do one of the severe weather outbreaks. We're, we're working on the April 7th, 2006 breakout. Uh, first affected uh, places like Nashville and then moved into uh, Georgia and South Carolina, even in Charleston. So, um, yeah, so we're looking forward to doing that as well, trying to uh, confirm our guests for that. So a lot of stuff coming up here on the Carolina Weather Group, so we hope that uh, you'll uh, continue watching us. So for everyone here, enjoy the snow if uh, if you get any. Uh, last uh, last winter's hoorah. So everyone have a great week. And uh, tweet us, hey, tweet us some pictures uh, or Facebook us some pictures if you get snow this, uh, this weekend. I know Ricky would appreciate it because he's going to be on TV uh, this weekend. So... Um, send us some photos. Let us know what it's doing in your area. So for everyone here at the uh, Carolina Weather Group, the guys are making fun of me here in the side chat. I'm, I'm reading it as I, uh, as I talk to you guys. So for everyone here on the Carolina Weather Group, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.